Former top executives at Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank are set to appear before the Senate Banking Committee after both lenders had to be rescued by the government earlier this year. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, May 16th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, three companies say the carbon pipelines they want to build in the Midwest would remove carbon dioxide from ethanol plants and help fight climate change. Some farmers and some residents are not so sure. And Boston chef and restaurant owner Barbara Lynch faces allegations of workplace abuse. She denies them. The case is sparking a conversation about the role customers can play when they choose a place to dine out. Shouldn't we also ask, what are their ethics? Are people in this restaurant happy? It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are coming up next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. There is a chance President Biden may head to the G7 meeting in Japan tomorrow and then head right back home where he's in a standoff with congressional Republicans over the nation's debt ceiling. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other conservatives are demanding federal spending cuts to go along with increasing the country's borrowing limit without which the U.S. heads into default possibly in a matter of weeks. Biden says the debt ceiling is a standalone issue. He and congressional leaders are currently holding talks. Democratic Congressman Jerry Conley says two aides who were injured in his district office by a man wielding a baseball bat have been released from the hospital. NPR's Deidre Walsh reports on the increased focus on security for lawmakers. Connolly praised local police for responding quickly to the attack in his Fairfax, Virginia district office Monday morning. He said the man who struck two aides, one senior staffer and an intern on her first day at the office, wasn't motivated by political ideology, but was mentally ill. Capitol Police are conducting a security review. But Connolly says some district offices are in federal buildings with security and others in strip malls without it. What's the balance between accessibility for the public we serve and security for the staff and public we serve? And that's going to be different for every office. Connolly is relieved his aides were okay, but he said his entire team is still dealing with the trauma of the attack. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. The Russian government claims its forces destroyed a Patriot surface-to-air missile defense system during overnight strikes on Ukraine. We have the latest from NPR's Dranka Kisses in Dnipro. The Russian military news outlet Zvezda quoted the Russian defense ministry as saying it had aimed its strikes at Ukrainian soldiers and ammunition storage sites. But the Ukrainians say none of these missiles hit their targets. Valery Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, said they were all shot down. The Patriot system, which was supplied by the U.S., has already shot down hypersonic Kinjal missiles in the past. Russia claims these missiles are unstoppable. Officials in the capital, Kyiv, said the strikes were exceptionally intense there, but that no one was hurt. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Nipro. The Department of Justice says it's charging a former Apple engineer with attempting to steal autonomous systems technology. Matt Olson, who leads the DOJ's National Security Division, says the stolen code is alleged to be trade secrets used by U.S. companies to develop self-driving cars and advance automotive manufacturing equipment. These cases demonstrate the breadth and complexity of the threats we face, as well as what is at stake. They say the suspect, Weibao Wang, had fled to China. 
The Dow Jones Industrial Average closes down 336 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Attorney for Massachusetts Rachel Rollins is resigning. Rollins' attorney says she will be submitting her resignation as the top federal law enforcement officer in the state to President Biden by the end of the week. Rollins has been the subject of an ethics investigation by the Justice Department's Inspector General, in part because of her appearance at a political fundraiser featuring First Lady Jill Biden. The Inspector General has not yet released the findings of that investigation. Rollins was DA of Suffolk County before she became U.S. Attorney last year. Massachusetts Governor Moore Healy says her office is in discussion with the legislature on the state budget for the next fiscal year. She says her office is speaking with Senate President Karen Spilka and the Speaker of the House Ron Mariano on the three proposals on the table. WBR's Amanda Beland reports the three include one from each chamber and the one the governor proposed. Governor Healy tells Radio Boston she was pleased to see both proposals from the legislature. There's a lot of overlap, both overlap in important investments we need to make in workforce, in education, in infrastructure. The more than $56 billion House budget prioritizes spending from lottery sales and the so-called millionaire's tax for the MBTA and universal school meals. The $55.8 billion Senate budget would allow all Massachusetts students, regardless of immigration status, to qualify for in-state tuition. It's a proposal that Healy supports. I think it's absolutely essential and a no-brainer. And In fact, 23 other states already do this. A final budget must be in place by July 1st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. Boston police are warning seniors about a new phone scam. Police say the scammer threatens to kidnap the target's family members unless that person pays them through an online app. Police say if you get one of the calls, contact police and then contact the person the caller says is being kidnapped to confirm their well-being. Police also say take note of the phone number where the caller text originated and report that to officers as well. 80 degrees now, some hazy sunshine out there, partly cloudy overnight tonight, chance of showers, lows about 49 tonight, mostly sunny and a bit cooler tomorrow, highs only about 61 degrees. 80 degrees now in Boston at 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Huntington Theater. Just announced, don't miss artistic director Loretta Greco's first season in Boston. Season ticket packages available now. Learn more at HuntingtonTheater.org. And BritBox, with the new season of Grace, based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original mysteries, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Coming up, we'll remember a legendary card player known as the godfather of poker. But first, we turn to Capitol Hill. That's right. That's where the leaders of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank testify today. And they got a chilly reception, to say the least. You see, about two months ago, both banks failed. That shocked markets and sparked turmoil that still has not let up. NPR's David Gura has been watching the hearing and joins us now. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. So what were the big revelations in today's hearing? Well, many senators are eager to channel anger about what's happened here into action to get these executives to return some of the tens of millions of dollars they made. The senators highlighted the fact that these two failures cost more than $16 billion, money other banks will have to pay back. Some senators suggested the government should claw back some of that compensation Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts asked Greg Becker, who used to run Silicon Valley Bank, if he would give some of that money back. 
How much of the 40 million are you planning to return? How many Senator, times are we going to do this dance? Senator, I promise to cooperate with the regulators as they do. Are you planning to return a single nickel to what you cost the fund? Senator, I know there's going to be a process review of compensation. I'll take that I'll as a no. Also, Senator Warren noted she and other senators on both sides of the aisle have introduced legislation that would make it possible for the government to claw back executive compensation. You know, Michael Barr, the Federal Reserve's vice chair for supervision, also brought up clawbacks at another hearing that took place on Capitol Hill today, this one with top banking regulators. He told the House Financial Services Committee the bonuses executives collected were, quote, outrageous, and he said the Fed is investigating them. Okay, so the gist, it sounds like, is there was not a lot of love for these executives from these no, senators. No, <laughs> no love and a lot of outrage. The regulators had to step in to rescue depositors of these two lenders. I mean, many lawmakers said these bankers were not serious about the risks they faced. And at one point, to illustrate that, Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana played a clip from this bizarre video that Signature Bank executives made for staff, kind of a strange Broadway-style send-up of how Signature Bank was founded. What possible fate will become of our bank other than to diminish and fail? Happen to know for a fact that won't happen. <laughs> of course, uh, it did happen. Yep. And the voice at the end there saying Signature Bank would not fail was one of today's witnesses, the bank's former chairman. Um, like many of his colleagues on the committee, Kennedy's primary target was Greg Becker, the former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, the first one that failed. Kennedy accused Becker of mismanaging the bank's investments, especially investments in government bonds, which left the bank exposed to a bank run. Senator, there were a series of events, unprecedented events that occurred that led us to where we are today. No, this wasn't unprecedented. This was bone deep down to the marrow, stupid. Becker said he was sorry about what happened, Elsa, but he and the two former executives from Signature Bank did not take responsibility. Instead, they blamed the unprecedented speed at which depositors withdrew their money, which they said would have been a challenge for any bank. Huh. Okay, so the executives may not be taking responsibility, but I guess at least the regulators are, right? As you said, they were also on the Hill today. How did that go over? Yeah, the Fed faulted regulators in this major report. Many Republican lawmakers said they're worried the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank will result in too much regulation. And they accused regulators of being asleep at the wheel. That's something that Republican senators echoed today. We'll get a chance to grill regulators at a Senate Banking Committee hearing on Thursday. All right. To be continued. That is NPR's David Gura. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. There's widespread fear among police that they could be poisoned with fentanyl while on the job. The powerful drug is common on the streets these days, and fentanyl is often present when officers respond to an overdose. But medical experts say the danger to first responders has been exaggerated. They worry a fentanyl panic is harming police and putting the public at risk. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann reports. Last December, Officer Courtney Bannock was on the job for the Tavares Police Department in Florida when she came into contact with powdered street fentanyl. The footage from another cop's body camera is frightening. She's ODing, She's ODing officers say. Bannock is lowered to the ground and treated with Narcan, a medication that quickly reverses most opioid fentanyl overdoses. Keep breathing. Stay with me, okay? Breathe. Speaking in December with WKMG News in Orlando, Bannock said she's lucky to be alive. If I didn't have backup there, I wouldn't be here today. The Tavares Police Department declined NPR's request for interviews, as did Bannock. Reports like this one of police being harmed by fentanyl occur regularly across the U.S. 
With the synthetic opioid now present in most of the country, many officers clearly believe they're in real danger. But Dr. Ryan Marino says the science shows police aren't being accidentally poisoned by fentanyl on the job. This has never happened. There has never been an overdose through skin contact or accidentally inhaling fentanyl. Marino is a toxicologist and emergency room physician who studies addiction at Case Western Reserve University. He says it's understandable police are afraid. Fentanyl is incredibly powerful. That's why tens of thousands of people overdose every year when using the street version of the drug. But it's actually really hard to get fentanyl into the body. That's why people addicted to the drug often smoke it or inject it using needles. So fentanyl does not pass through the skin efficiently or well. The dry powder form that is encountered in street drugs is not going to cross through the skin in any meaningful way. Researchers also say fentanyl powder doesn't poison people when it's airborne like dust. Brandon Del Pozo was a former police chief who studies addiction at Brown University. There's never been uh, a toxicologically confirmed case. The idea of it hanging in the air and getting breathed in is just highly, highly implausible. It's nearly impossible. NPR reached out to the Tavares, Florida Police Department and Officer Bannock asking for toxicology reports or other information confirming she was affected by fentanyl. They declined to make that medical information public. We contacted numerous other law enforcement and government agencies and researchers around the country and couldn't find a single case of a police officer who overdosed on fentanyl confirmed by toxicology reports. A spokesperson for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention told NPR the agency does believe a small number of first responders nationwide have experienced real symptoms after encountering fentanyl on the job. None of those cases involved overdoses. None were life-threatening. Del Pozo, the former police chief, believes the most serious risk to police officers isn't accidental overdose. It's anxiety and stress caused by misinformation about fentanyl. I mean, imagine you do a job every day where you just think you know, being near a certain car or being near a certain person could kill you. It's, it's a real mental health problem for officers. The, 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 the good fortune is that it's, it's just, just not necessary to have that fear. Del Pozo says many reported fentanyl overdoses among police involve symptoms that look more like panic attacks than opioid overdoses. Experts say this heightened fear began when the first fentanyl warnings were issued by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration half a decade ago. Fentanyl is deadly. Exposure to an amount equivalent to a few grains of sand can kill you. Chuck Rosenberg, head of the DEA under Presidents Obama and Trump, urged local cops to treat fentanyl as a major risk. It is extremely dangerous to users and to those who simply come into contact with it. If you're a first responder, that could be you. In 2017, just a few months after that video was posted, toxicology researchers issued a report contradicting the government's assessment, concluding that the danger to law enforcement from street fentanyl is extremely low. Ryan Marino, the toxicologist and emergency room physician at Case Western, says fear of fentanyl is making it harder for police to do their jobs protecting the public. I have seen that play out in reality where someone who is truly experiencing an overdose, someone who has overdosed on fentanyl, will not be resuscitated appropriately or in a timely manner because of this fear that getting close to them, touching them, could cause some sort of secondhand overdose. With fentanyl deaths still at record levels, local police are often the first responders on the scene. Experts say how they're trained, how they view the dangers of fentanyl, and how they do their jobs could mean life or death for many people with addiction. The CDC says it's updating guidelines for first responders encountering fentanyl. That new information is expected in the next month. Brian Mann, 
NPR News. The man known to some as the godfather of poker has died. Doyle Brunson's career in many ways parallels the trajectory of the game he played, from an illicit backroom card game to a widely televised sport. Brunson didn't start out as a card player. He played college basketball and was on track to join the Minneapolis Lakers in the 1950s. Then he broke his leg. And that injury set him on a different path. He started out small, playing weekend poker games around Texas. It was a reputational risk at the time, as he said on the show, poker superstars. People that you thought were your friends actually looked down on you because they thought you were some kind of a gangster or something because you were a poker player. He did encounter some gangsters while frequenting illegal games. He said he got arrested multiple times, got cheated and robbed. Once at a farmhouse in Austin, he says seven guys in ski masks took the player's money and held Brunson at gunpoint. So he had one of those old-fashioned shotguns where you cock the hammers, and he cocked both of the hammers on his double-barrel shotgun. He said it right here between my eyes. He said, I said, who runs this poker game? And I told him, that guy right down there in the green shirt. <laughs> so... Everybody laughed about it for years. Soon, though, Brunson and the game took on a higher stature with the 1970 launch of the World Series of Poker. He went on to win 10 World Series tournaments, picking up the nickname Texas Dolly. And he became the first player to win a million dollars in tournament play. He wrote about his strategies. His book, called Super System, appeared in the opening scenes of the 1998 gambling film Rounders, with Matt Damon pulling a wad of $100 bills out of the book. If you can't spot the sucker in your first half, hour at the table and you are the sucker in 2006 the site gutshot poker asked brunson if he had plans to retire no i i'll retire when i can't win any longer and until then I, I i plan on just keep playing and keep playing he did he even entered the world series of poker in 2021 though he did not win he finished his career with more than six million dollars in tournament earnings doyle brunson died sunday in las vegas he was 89. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on All Things Considered in just about 20 minutes. The French basketball player considered the greatest NBA draft pick of all time. And coming up in just a couple of minutes, the IRS is experimenting with its own online tax filing system taxpayers could use for free. A pilot test is being planned for next year. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. Stocks dropped on Wall Street today. The Dow fell a full percent, S&P lost more than six-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq dipped nearly two-tenths of a percent. Employees of the REI store in Boston's Fenway neighborhood have voted to organize. Yesterday, workers of the Outdoor Gear Co-op voted to join the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union. They say they want consistent hours, sustainable wages, and improved store safety. A company statement says REI will support workers as they begin the collective bargaining process. The forecast is coming up. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Bionova Scientific, a biologic CDMO providing development and GMP manufacturing services to small and mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. BionovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. 
Another nice afternoon and evening coming up with temperatures overnight tonight falling all the way to 49 degrees, partly cloudy tonight. And for tomorrow, a lot chillier than it has been. 61 degrees for a high, but still lots of sunshine. This is WBUR, 80 degrees at 420. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Best Barry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bestberry.com. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A lot of people would like to have a simpler way to pay their taxes, especially if it were free. Well, the IRS is developing its own free filing system that would allow taxpayers to sidestep commercial offerings like TurboTax. The agency plans a limited test of the program next year. It is sure to face stiff opposition from the $14 billion tax preparation industry. NPR's Scott Horsley is here to explain. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ari. So what is the IRS's goal here? Well, the tax collector is looking for a way to make it easier and more affordable for people to file their tax returns. Uh, Right now, the average taxpayer spends about eight hours and $140 a year just prepping their return or having somebody else do it for them. Lots of other countries already have a free government-run filing option, and the National Taxpayer Advocate has long urged the IRS to offer one. So this is a baby step in that direction. Uh, Next year's pilot program will likely be limited in scope. Even if the program's ultimately expanded, it would be strictly optional. IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel stressed, if you like your tax preparer, you can keep him. Taxpayers will always have choices for how they file their taxes. They can use tax software. They can use a trusted tax professional. They can use a paper tax return. We'd rather they file it electronically, sure, but they have that choice. So he's saying filers have choices. They don't have to use the new system. Why might somebody opt out of it? Not everybody trusts the IRS to handle their taxes. Uh, Some worry the tax collector might not help them find the biggest refund or the smallest tax bill like a commercial preparer. But an IRS survey did find nearly three out of four taxpayers are at least somewhat interested or very interested in having a free government-run filing option. With so much interest, why has it taken so long? Well, the commercial tax preparation industries fought long and hard to keep the IRS from going down this road. Uh, They spent a lot of money on lobbying. Two decades ago, companies like H&R Block and Intuit, the maker of TurboTax, even agreed to build their own free filing system in exchange for a promise from the IRS to stay out of the business. Uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says that free file system has been a flop. That was supposed to make filing free for 70 percent of taxpayers. But today... That free file program serves just 2% of Americans. And that's because the tax prep companies sabotaged the program so they could keep raking in money. Last year, TurboTax paid $141 million to settle a complaint that it advertised free tax filing. 
then steered customers into costly upgrades. Now, the company did not admit to any wrongdoing. And the tax prep companies are going to fight to defend their turf. Uh, An Intuit spokesman says the proposed IRS system is, quote, nothing more than a solution in search of a problem. And he added it will unnecessarily cost taxpayers billions of dollars. Fact check that for us. Would it cost billions of dollars? You know, there's lots of uncertainty around the cost. Uh, it depends in part on how big the system is, how many people use it. Uh, you know, is it limited to very simple returns? Can it process more complex tax situations? In its report today, the IRS estimated this would cost somewhere between 64 and $249 million a year, so a pretty big range. Some of that would be for technology, but a big piece would also be customer support that the IRS would have to build out in order to help people navigate the system. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. Over the last year or so, you've probably felt the effects of inflation at the grocery store, in restaurants, or even at the gas pump. But one particular group of people has been hit especially hard, the incarcerated. That's according to a recent analysis from The Marshall Project, a nonprofit newsroom that covers the criminal justice system. For more on this, we've called Alex Ariaga, a reporter at The Marshall Project, who helped put this analysis together. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much. Thanks for being here. So, I mean, we should first note that it's pretty complicated to track these figures. Your reporting shows that each state handles commissary pricing and sourcing differently. But generally speaking, what were some of the major trends that you saw at prisons across the country? Yes. So in my reporting, um, I requested commissary prices from all 50 departments of correction. And from the 26 that responded, you know, it was a range of the way that they all handle their pricing and the contracts that they have with vendors. But we did see a pattern of rising prices on items like peanut butter, ramen soup, soap and toothpaste, basic food and hygiene items that are really commonly purchased. Well, your reporting goes into some of the stark differences between what certain goods in prison cost versus what the cost is for those same goods on the outside. And we're talking about things like, you know, soap, toothpaste, food. Just give us an idea, like how much more expensive are some of these items in prison? Yeah, so we found that, for example, a jar of peanut butter, depending on where a person is incarcerated, now costs between 25% to 35% more. In some situations, something stood out where the price of peanut butter increased by 61 cents in the Wisconsin Department of Corrections while the portion size decreased. Mm. And in some situations, we also saw where states' price lists showed the retail price that they paid, that people incarcerated are paying more while the retail price stayed the same for the department. So I know that you talked to some people in prison who are facing these rising costs. Can you talk about what they told you about how these prices are affecting their living conditions. So I reached out to incarcerated people in different states who all expressed the emotional aspect of the struggle to pay for these basic items. So you get the price list, the menu for what you're going to be able to buy the next day, and you're looking at the prices and they're higher than you budgeted for. And now you're going to go instead of for the nutritional option, you're choosing cheese and crackers, or, you know, you're going without deodorant. People are feeling more tense. And there's a certain sense of humor that people cope with as well. One person told me, you know, people were joking that they were going to trade sexual favors for some of these basic items. God. I mean, they say that jokingly, but do you think some of that is going on to supplement income? Yeah, it's definitely kind of a coping mechanism to make a joke out of something like that. But we do hear that people do go to really desperate measures and drastic measures to be able to 
eat and have their basic needs met. And there are examples of violence and fights and people robbing one another for a meal. Mm-hmm. You know, I imagine that there are some people listening to us talk right now and are thinking to themselves, okay, fine, this is unfortunate. Inflation is affecting people in prisons, but inflation is affecting everybody. So, of course, we're seeing an effect inside the prison system. How do you respond to that sentiment? I think there's a maybe an attitude that what's going on in prisons is separate and other from the outside, and it's not affecting me. But we know, you know, from the pandemic that what happens inside of prisons and inside of jails, it all kind of feeds into everything else. We know that people in prison are working and manufacturing goods that we purchase and that we know they're working in construction and agriculture. And we know that, you know, we know based on the same families that are struggling to afford for basic food items on the outside, a lot of them are also covering the costs for rising food items on the inside of prisons. And they're struggling They're you know, do I send my loved one in prison enough money to pay for his meals or do I put food on my own table? That is Alex Ariaga, a reporter at the Marshall Project. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clouds backlit by the sun this afternoon and then a cloudy night ahead tonight. Breezy and cooler, just under 50. Tomorrow should stay on the cooler side, only reaching 62 degrees with sunshine. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds. salemstate.edu slash graduate. How to cover a former president who tried to overthrow an election and is now a candidate again. Media critic Dan Frumkin says CNN's recent town hall is not the way to do it. It was a totally predictable disaster. We thought the media had learned a lesson. You just don't give them an open mic. In post-January 6th America, how should the media report on the Trump candidacy now? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden and top congressional leaders remain far apart after their second meeting today at the White House over raising the nation's debt ceiling. The U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills as soon as June 1st if no deal is reached to raise the debt limit. There may be some common ground, though, on clawing back unused COVID relief funds and permitting reform for energy and infrastructure projects. But Republican House uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy says time is running out and there's lots to do before a deal can be reached. We've got a lot of work to do in a short amount of time. Now, I wish we had been able to be in this place 100 days ago. This is what we requested, but we are where we are. So we will work hard to make sure to try to have this to come to fruition. The White House says President Biden will still leave tomorrow for the G7 meetings in Japan, but he's canceling his trip to Australia next week because of the looming debt ceiling. Russia has arrested a former employee of a U.S. consulate 
accusing him of collaborating with foreigners. The U.S. is condemning the move, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The State Department says that the allegations against Robert Shonov are, quote, wholly without merit. He's a Russian national who worked for the U.S. consulate in Vladivostok for 25 years before it was shut down. Russia has since barred the State Department from hiring any local staff in the country. The State Department says Shonov had been working for a private company that had a contract with the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. He was compiling media summaries from published Russian press reports. The Russians accuse him of, quote, confidential cooperation with a foreign government. The U.S. says Russia is increasingly using repressive laws against its own citizens. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, stocks fell across the board today. The Dow lost 336 points, down more than 1%. This is NPR. In Oakland, California, students and teachers are back in the classroom today after a seven-day strike. A tentative deal announced yesterday ended a labor dispute that disrupted life for tens of thousands of families there. From member station KQED, Vanessa Rancano has more. Oakland parent Kimmy Lee was more than ready to send her two kids back to school. So the fact that it was seven or eight days, that was a bit of a shock. Still, she says she supported the strike because she wants Oakland schools to do better by students. I want to see more action and more commitment to the things that they promise. The agreement includes 10% raises, $5,000 bonuses, and other perks meant to help recruit and retain teachers. Now the district has to figure out how to pay for the roughly $70 million compensation package. For NPR News, I'm Vanessa Rancaño in Oakland. People spent more money in restaurants last month and less money at the grocery store as retail sales rose just four-tenths of a percent in April. Commerce Department says that's a smaller jump than forecasters expected, although March uh, sales figures were revised upwards. Shoppers also spent more online, but less on gas, electronics, and furniture. It's an encouraging sign that the Fed's ongoing efforts to tamp down inflation by tightening access to credit is working. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street today. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins plans to resign by the end of the week. She is the top federal law enforcement officer in the state. Here's WBR's Walter Wuthman. Rollins has been the subject of a months-long ethics investigation by the Department of Justice for her appearance at a Democratic political fundraiser last year. The results of the probe have not been released, but her lawyer now tells the Associated Press she plans to submit a letter of resignation to President Biden by Friday. Rollins was the popular and progressive district attorney for Suffolk County before Biden chose her for the federal role. Senate Republicans opposed her nomination, and the vice president had to step in twice to break a tie vote. She took the post last year. Rollins' office has not yet responded to a request for comment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Massachusetts businesses hoping to make use of the Federal CHIPS Act funds can use an online portal that was launched by the state to do so. The CHIPS Act is a $50 billion initiative to strengthen the country's semiconductor research sector. The state launched the portal to help make it easier for local companies to finalize their applications for federal aid. Specifically, it will help the businesses access and get proof of funding support from the state. And firefighters in Lynn say a brush fire in the Lynn Woods Reservation is contained for now. It started 
started Friday. In a tweet this afternoon, the fire department says state police helped knock down the fire by dropping water on the flames from a helicopter. There are still smoldering trees and stumps in the area that state officials will monitor. There are no reports of injuries or damage to nearby homes. The cause of the fire is under investigation. In nearby Saugus, firefighters continue to battle a brush fire in the Breakheart Reservation. It's 435. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Summer semester starts June 5th, semesteroff.com. And Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Do be careful if you're cooking out tonight. There's a higher-than-usual risk of brush fires for the state, except for the Cape and Islands. Sunset is one of the most risky times of the day. A red flag warning is in effect until 8 o'clock tonight. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru with the 2023 Subaru Forester, featuring standard symmetrical all-wheel drive and safety technology. Love, it's what makes Subaru Subaru. Learn more at Subaru.com. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Victor Wenbenyama. If that's a name you don't know yet, you will soon. It belongs to the French basketball player who some consider the greatest draft pick of all time. And this is the day, thanks to the NBA draft lottery, that will make it clearer which jersey Wenbenyama will wear as the 14 teams who did not make the playoffs figure out who gets the top pick. To find out more about Victor Wembenyama and what makes him so very special, we're joined now by Zach Cram, who's a staff writer for The Ringer. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So, okay, if Wembenyama is the greatest, just like how great is he? Is he worth all this hype? He is. I don't know if he is the number one definite greatest prospect of all time, but he's certainly number one since LeBron James 20 years ago. Wow. So most good NBA players fit into, broadly speaking, one or two camps. There are shorter guards who are really good at dribbling, really good at shooting, but not as good near the basket, not as good on defense. Or there are the big guys who are dominant near the basket, but they can't shoot as well. They can't dribble. They're not as fast. Wembenyama combines the best of both worlds. He's kind of like a guard in the body of the tallest player in the NBA because he has that shooting range because he has that ball handling ability, but also he could be the best defender in the league. So most every other player has weaknesses or trade-offs they have to make because of their skills and size. Wembenyama has everything. That's incredible. Okay, so the worst ranking teams have the best chance at a number one draft pick, right? And I heard that during the regular season, there was some speculation that it actually might be worth it for a team to throw their season in order to get a better chance of drafting Wembenyama. I mean, I'm not a basketball fan. That just sounds crazy to me. Is it really worth it to throw your entire season just for a shot at getting Wembenyama? More than any other sport in basketball, just one superstar can change the direction of a franchise. There are only five players on the court at a time, and the best player can get the ball as much as he wants. In basketball, all it takes is one player, like LeBron James, to change the direction of a franchise. The Cavaliers were one of the worst teams in the NBA, 
And then LeBron arrived and they instantaneously almost became one of the best franchises in the NBA. And the belief, the hope is that Wembenyama can do the same thing. So would a team sacrifice one bad season for potentially 10, 15, <laughs> 20 wonderful years with Wembenyama? I think that's a fair trade-off. Good point. But let me ask you this. I mean, Wembenyama is coming from the French League, right? So that's just not as intense as the NBA. How ready would he be to play in the NBA on day one? You're right. The French League, not only is it not the NBA, it's also not number two. But this is still a professional league with grown men, a number of whom have played in the NBA before. And Wembenyama, at the age of 19, is the best player in the French League this year. He leads the league in points. He leads the league in rebounds. He leads the league in blocks. And he's been preparing for this for a long time. He started learning English at a young age because he knew he was going to find himself playing in the United States someday. And also, he has a team of trainers and nutrition experts and fitness experts to really make his body ready because the concern with tall NBA players is usually that their bodies break down just because they have so much more to worry about. But yeah. Wembenyama has been training down to like the narrowest body parts. He has big toe exercises oh my that God. he's been doing just to make sure that his feet are strong enough wow. to sustain an NBA workload. So. I don't know if any 19-year-old can confidently predict I'm going to last an entire NBA season <laughs> year after year after year, but I think he's in as good a shape as anybody in his position could possibly be. Zach Cram of The Ringer, thank you so much. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Like many nations, South Korea has an aging and shrinking workforce, and the country looks to immigrants to bolster it. But a case in Daegu, South Korea's third largest city, is testing the nation's tolerance for increasing diversity. NPR's Anthony Kuhn traveled there and filed this report. At the heart of the dispute is the Darul Iman Islamic Center, where an imam leads afternoon prayers. The center sits down a narrow alleyway near a university. The worshippers are mostly students from there. Since 2020, students have been trying to build a proper mosque to accommodate more worshippers. But Muaz Razak, a 26-year-old PhD student from Pakistan, says they face severe resistance from local residents. They were, like, literally calling us terrorists when we were passing. In one video Razak shot last year, a local resident stands in the alleyway shouting out the text of a sign in English. Muslims have killed people brutally and beheaded them, he shouts, adding, get out of this area right now, terrorists. Razak says the construction of the mosque would have been finished by now if residents had not obstructed the builders. But protesters reject this claim. Kim Jong-A is the deputy head of a local residence committee. She says they're not opposing the mosque itself. They just think this is the wrong place for it. We are opposed to a public facility being built in the middle of a residential district with no public road. We would have objected to anything. She says the mosque's neighbors have put up with inconvenience, noise, and cooking odors coming from the Islamic Center for years, but they don't object to Muslims or their faith. Reports say residents are opposing Islam as a religion, but we don't really know about Islam. It's so unfamiliar, foreign to us. But some residents' actions suggest otherwise. Just outside the mosque, you can hear a quiet hum. It's a resident's refrigerator. Inside it sit three severed pig's heads. Residents opposed to the mosque have also held parties in the alleyway serving pork. 
Yi So-hoon is a sociologist at Gyeongbok National University next to the mosque. She also heads a task force supporting the mosque's construction. She says that the mosque case follows backlashes against Yemeni refugees in 2018 and Afghans in 2021. And they call into question whether the increasing diversity resulted in more acceptance of foreigners. Or more xenophobia against them. Foreigners now account for about 4.4 percent of South Korea's population of 52 million. Muslims account for about an estimated 0.4 percent. Despite the backlashes against them, he says, No government authorities other than the Human Rights Commission in this country, no university, have said it is wrong to hate Muslims. The National Human Rights Commission of Korea, a government agency, said in March that putting pork in front of a mosque amounts to hate speech. E notes that South Korea lacks an anti-discrimination law, but South Korea's constitution bans discrimination, and, he says, so do international covenants South Korea has signed. The problem, Muaz Razak says, is that South Korean authorities are not enforcing them. If this mosque construction is illegal, you should stop us. And the students' community will have no right to construct here. But if it is legal, then your job is to protect us and enforce the rule of law. For now, civic groups are lining up on opposing sides of this issue. Groups supporting human rights and multiculturalism are backing the Muslims, while conservatives and some church groups side with the residents. Rallies against the mosque are scheduled for later this month. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Daegu, South Korea. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. There's long been debate over how best to cut greenhouse gas emissions like carbon dioxide to fight climate change, especially as the country tries to reach a net zero emissions goal by 2050. One of the latest examples is in the Midwest. Three companies say they can build major carbon capture pipelines that could remove the gas from ethanol plants and store it deep underground. While the ethanol industry is on board, others question the climate benefits. Harvest Public Media's Katie Pikus reports. It's a windy day and I'm at a come-and-go gas station in Ames, Iowa. Cars are lined up and we're all filling up with gasoline. The gas I'm putting into my car has 10% ethanol. And in Iowa, ethanol is huge. We have the highest concentration of ethanol production. Monty Shaw is the executive director of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. He says Iowa is the largest corn producer in the U.S., and about half of that corn becomes ethanol. California and some other states have fuel standards that are pushing ethanol to lower its emissions. The Biden administration is even offering incentives for carbon dioxide removal. Shaw says Iowa's ethanol industry needs carbon pipelines to compete. If Iowa screws this up, we're in big trouble. We will absolutely lose a huge chunk of our industry and put the Iowa ag economy in a tailspin. The proposed pipeline routes could span six states, from the Dakotas down to Illinois. One of the pipeline companies boasts more than 2,500 landowners have signed on to its project. Many farmers in Iowa say they support ethanol, but they oppose carbon pipelines, not over carbon emissions, but over property rights. 
Northeast Iowa farmer Jeff Reince hauls practically all of his corn to an ethanol plant you can see from his farm. Reince was skeptical when he first heard of the pipelines. Then he learned that the nearby ethanol plant had signed on to one of the projects and a pipeline would run through part of his farm. This is some of the best farmland the good Lord has entrusted us with to be stewards of. And uh, it's just a shame to think that just for private gain that they're going to put that scar across our land. There are farmers across the Midwest who agree. The issue has brought farmers and environmentalists together in an atypical alliance. Jess Mazur of the Iowa chapter of the Sierra Club says carbon pipelines don't solve climate change. There are tried and true ways to solve our climate crisis that are better uses of our public tax dollars than this questionable um, technology that you know puts risky pipelines in our backyards, that destroys farmland. The three pipeline companies say capturing carbon helps the U.S. meet its greenhouse gas emissions goals. Elizabeth Burns Thompson is the spokesperson for Navigator CO2 and says the company will be able to capture and store 15 million metric tons of CO2 each year. For the processors that we are partnering with, it is the biggest tool in the toolbox for decarbonization. University of Minnesota engineering professor Jason Hill says ethanol with carbon capture pipelines could reduce some of its CO2, but long term, these pipelines perpetuate using liquid fuel for transportation. When in fact, we know that vehicle electrification using clean electricity sources or cleaner electricity sources uh, can more quickly uh, get us to our carbon reduction targets. While disagreement over carbon pipelines continues, all three pipeline companies are working to get land rights for their projects around the Midwest. For NPR News, I'm Katie Pikus in Ames, Iowa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Mifepristone, sometimes known as the abortion pill, is at the center of a legal battle. Some of the people who've taken it share their stories coming up in about 15 minutes. And coming up just ahead, work culture in the restaurant business. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. A Museum of Science, maneuver through vibrant, mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Tickets at MOS.org. Still pretty beautiful out there now. Sunshine filtered by the clouds this afternoon and tonight. Then temperatures head downward overnight, about 49 for a low. Tomorrow should be a lot cooler than it has been lately, only rising to the low 60s tomorrow despite a good share of sunshine. Thursday, sunny, a little bit milder. Temperatures in the mid-60s. 80 degrees now in Boston. It's 450. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBUR's Morning Edition. If you aren't an early riser like me, no problem. Download the new and improved WBUR app and never miss a minute of live radio. You can pause and rewind Morning Edition or start from the top of the hour all on your schedule. Listen to all your favorite shows when and how you want 
Get the new WBUR app in your app store today. This is All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The restaurant community has been shaken by allegations made against Boston chef Barbara Lynch. Investigations published in the New York Times and the Boston Globe accuse Lynch of creating toxic work environments in her restaurants. She denies the claims. The accusations are raising broader questions about the culture within restaurants and the effect it has on workers and their mental health. WBR's Andrea Shea has more. It's been a tough, emotional year for Tim Deering. He's one of the more than 20 former employees who spoke out about Barbara Lynch. But the hardest part is that Deering lost his best friend and colleague, Rye Crofter. He was named Rye because his parents worked at a bakery. It was always ingrained into his life. Um, And, like, that's how we became really good friends, is through food, like punk rock and food. Deering and Crofter were friends for 22 years. They grew up in kitchens and ultimately worked together at Lynch's high-end restaurant Menton. Crofter was executive chef for her restaurant group, and Deering says they both felt burnt out and frustrated working 12 to 14-hour days. And just, like, the crazy attitudes, the stress. But, like, we were always trying to figure out, like, a way not to have that. Kitchens can be pressure cookers, and Deering, who's 38, says this physically and mentally grueling work culture endures. He traces it back to elite 20th century French chefs who ran their kitchens like military brigades. It's very hierarchical. It's very, like, no matter what, you take it. Deering acknowledges he's had his own angry moments and brash responses, but he says he and Crofter wanted to create healthier ways to communicate. They talked about holding regular meetings so cooks could speak openly about operational and interpersonal issues. But they never got to implement that idea because Crofter died of a fentanyl overdose in January. Me and Rye were recovering alcoholics and addicts, and, you know, I've been clean for 11 years. Rye had about eight. It was all a surprise to all of us. And, like, a lot of friends have died from this. Like, a lot of people. The 35-year-old chef's death became a tipping point for Deering and his colleagues to break their silence about Barbara Lynch. They allege she was a neglectful leader who verbally and physically harassed employees for years, which Lynch denies. Now Deering hopes this story serves as a wake-up call for change across the industry. This conversation does not get enough airtime. Hasela Villas is co-founder of Not 9 to 5, a global nonprofit based in Toronto that promotes mental health advocacy in the restaurant and hospitality sector. It's a deep, dark, painful conversation. And also, the longer that we don't have it for, unfortunately, the more these experiences keep happening. Avilis is 42 and has struggled with anxiety, depression, and substance use over her 17 years in the industry. In 2021, her organization surveyed more than 600 restaurant professionals, and about 90 percent reported similar experiences. We're not investing in people. We're not investing in adequate training. We're not providing people with adequate compensation, adequate breaks. We're not providing psychological safety. I mean, all of these things are not happening. And so that's why we have such high rates of mental health and substance use challenges. 
To support the industry, Not 9 to 5 created a mental health hospitality coalition and a slew of online resources. There's also a certification program to help employers learn how to foster emotionally safe work environments. But, Avila says, unlearning the past will take time and leadership. The employer has a responsibility to create a safe workplace for all workers. So that way goes to the receiving door and the walk-in, the wines are here, dish pit here, freezers, and then bath prep kitchen here. Tracy Chang is chef owner at Pagu, a Spanish-Japanese tapas restaurant in Cambridge. The 35-year-old's kitchen staff is busy chopping vegetables and prepping for dinner service. They chat and smile, but they're also super focused. Chang says she tries to cultivate a positive environment at Pagu. This is probably the strongest team and most tight-knit team I've had in the six years of operation. Chang gives her 30 employees flexible schedules. The restaurant has a shared tip system. She says she tries to provide room for professional growth and just listening. You know, like treat people like you would want to be treated, do unto others, right? Chang knows how chaotic restaurants can be. She's worked at several, including in Europe, and knew she wanted to do things differently at her own place. For Chang, a big part of that is establishing boundaries. Coming up as a chef, she witnessed toxic behavior, including abuse and harassment, that was often tied to staff drinking together. So Chang made Pagu a dry restaurant. So dry restaurant is for us that the employees and ownership and managers are not drinking at the restaurant before their job, during their job, after their job. But they do play soccer together, Chang says. For her, a healthy, happy staff that feels connected and valued is also good for business. There's less turnover. Some of her employees have stayed on since year one. But to really change restaurant culture, Chang says customers need to care. I think when we decide where we go out to eat, instead of asking, like, oh, is this, like, the most interesting thing I feel like eating tonight, Shouldn't we also ask, what are their ethics? Are people in this restaurant happy? They have a positive work culture. There's like a a good vibe, you know, maybe that's a good place to support. And Chang believes if the staff is treated well, the food will probably taste better too. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Shea. This story was co-reported by WBUR's Ninjor Enwameka. The conversation about toxic restaurant culture and how to change it continues tonight with the discussion at WBUR City Space. It's at 6.30. You can watch it live at wbur.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals, Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Progressive Insurance, with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate, at progressive.com. Not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. Hazy sunshine this afternoon. Then a cloudy night ahead tonight. Breezy and cooler, just under 50 degrees. Tomorrow should stay on the cooler side, only reaching 62 despite mostly sunny skies. 80 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 459. WBUR supporters include Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. Northbridge Brass, presenting a patriotic brass concert with BSO and Pops musicians, May 27th and 28th in Boston and Worcester, northbridgebrass.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices, stanhopeframers.com. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, partnering with Mass Audubon to protect climate-resilient landscapes. MathWorks.com slash Mass Audubon. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A White House meeting on the debt ceiling ended today with no agreement between President Joe Biden and GOP congressional leaders. That leaves the two sides at an impasse with just two weeks to go before the U.S. risks hitting the debt ceiling for the first time. It's Tuesday, May 16th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, five men have been sentenced in what's been called the most spectacular jewel heist in German history. A woman with an abusive boyfriend gets pregnant and seeks an abortion using the drug Mifepristone. I was like, if I have a child with this guy, I'll never get away from him. Never. I will never get away from him. Stories from women who've relied on the drug coming up. And Portland, Maine has long been a resettlement hub for asylum seekers, but now they're spreading into nearby communities that have fewer resources to accommodate them. These stories and Wall Street numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says President Biden will cut short his upcoming visit to the Indo-Pacific region to focus on resolving the stalemate over the nation's debt ceiling. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers are up against a critical deadline to reach an agreement and avert a potential default and met briefly at the White House today. White House spokesman John Kirby was questioned by reporters about the timing of President Biden's trip. The President of the United States can do both things. He can travel overseas and manage our foreign policy and our defense policy and look after our national security commitments in an important region like the Indo-Pacific and also work with congressional leaders to do the right thing, raise the debt ceiling, avoid default. The White House says Biden will travel to Japan on Wednesday as part of what was supposed to be a week-long trip through the Indo-Pacific region with stops in Papua New Guinea and Australia. But now the president will return to Washington from Japan on Sunday. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. The judge has ordered a Minnesota medical products company to pay nearly half a billion dollars to settle allegations of Medicare fraud. Matt Sepik of Minnesota Public Radio reports. A jury found Precision Lens submitted nearly $44 million in false claims to Medicare and paid illegal kickbacks to eye surgeons to get them to use its products. A judge ordered the company to pay triple damages plus another $358 million in penalties. The whistleblower who brought the case a decade ago is entitled to part of the money recovered. 
reporter Matt Sepik. The U.S. Department of Education is issuing updated guidance on prayer and other religious expressions in public schools. More from NPR's Jason DeRose. The new guidance says teachers, administrators, and other school employees may not encourage or discourage private prayer or other religious activity among students. It goes on to say the Constitution allows school employees themselves to engage in private prayer during the workday, but they cannot compel coerce, persuade, or encourage students to join them. The guidance also says a school may take reasonable measures to ensure students aren't pressured to join their teachers' or coaches' prayers. The guidance follows last year's Supreme Court decision Kennedy versus Bremerton, which held a school district could not stop a football coach from praying on the 50-yard line after games. Jason DeRose, NPR News. The head of the artificial intelligence company that makes chat GPT open AI told lawmakers that government intervention will be critical to mitigate the risks of increasingly powerful AI systems. CEO Sam Altman testifying in a Senate hearing today saying he supports the formation of U.S. or global agency that would license the most powerful AI systems. Altman's San Francisco-based startup rocketed to public attention after it released chat GPT late last year. A down day on Wall Street. The Dow fell 336 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins is resigning. The move comes after months-long federal ethics investigation that centered on Rollins' appearance at a Democratic National Committee fundraiser featuring First Lady Jill Biden. The Justice Department's watchdog has not yet released its findings from that investigation. Rollins is the top federal law enforcement officer in the state. She's expected to submit her resignation letter to President Biden by the end of the day Friday. Senator Ed Markey is co-sponsoring the effort to expand the U.S. Supreme Court by four justices. The Massachusetts Democrat introduced the bill today. He says it's the only way to restore legitimacy to what is an increasingly reactionary court. Here's WBUR's Anthony Brooks. Speaking outside the U.S. Supreme Court today, Markey said Republicans have packed the court with conservatives, and the result has been a series of partisan rulings, striking down gun control, weakening civil rights, and ending abortion rights. The court has put all these rights of all Americans, but especially those of people of color, women, immigrants, and LGBTQ rural and low-income communities at risk. Markey says expanding the court to 13 justices would restore its balance and legitimacy. The bill is unlikely to advance in the Republican-controlled House or muster 60 votes to defeat the Senate filibuster. But Markey and his co-author in the House, Hank Jones of Georgia, say this is the start of a long fight to reform the high court. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren is criticizing the former leaders of two failed banks. On Capitol Hill today, Warren's Senate Banking Committee heard testimony from one-time Silicon Valley Bank CEO Greg Becker and former Signature Bank Chairman Scott Shea. Warren says it's wrong that both men were able to pocket millions from selling shares of their bank stocks before the collapses. They can lobby for weaker bank regulations. They can load up their banks with risk. They can pay themselves tens of millions of dollars in bonuses and stock options. And when the banks blow up, Mr. Becker and Mr. Shea get to keep all the money. Greg Becker, formerly of Silicon Valley Bank, blamed the collapse on social media-driven bank run. 
Senator Warren has filed a bill with three other senators that would allow the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation to recover executives' pay from the five years prior to a failure. Today, neither executive said he would voluntarily return part of their past compensation to cover the cost of the bank's collapse. In the forecast, bright skies still, although clouds should take over tonight as temperatures head downward in the upper 40s tonight. Tomorrow should only make it to the low 60s. A good share of sunshine around, though. Slightly milder and still sunny on Thursday. 80 degrees in Boston at 5.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and Southampton, England, on Queen Mary 2, with a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. Cunard.com slash crossing. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Time is running out to raise the debt limit. Today, President Biden met with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to see if there's agreement on how to avert a default. Worries are growing. Leaders of some of the nation's biggest companies weighed in today for the first time, urging a resolution. And Biden is making changes to a big international trip that starts tomorrow. NPR's Franco Ordonez has the latest from the White House. Hi, Franco. Hey, Ari. Just a couple weeks away now from the deadline where the government would run out of money to pay its bills. Are the president and congressional leaders getting any closer to a deal? Well, I mean, both sides spoke positively about the meeting, but they also emphasized that there was still a lot of work to be done. Ahead of the meeting, they actually said they did not expect any major breakthroughs. But coming out of it, they did seem to have at least reduced the number of people who are trying to negotiate a deal. Here actually is House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. I think we um, set the stage to carry on further conversations. You know, we only have 15 days really to go. Um, We've got to find a way that we can curve our spending, raise our debt limit, and uh, also grow our economy. And uh, the president agreed to um, appoint a couple people from his administration to sit down and negotiate directly with uh, my team. So I found that to be productive personally. Any details, Franco, about what actually happened in the room? Seemed like there was any common ground? Well, I mean, we don't know whether there was any progress made on some of the kind of sticking points, like new work requirements that Republicans want for Medicaid and food assistance, as well as as closing some of the loopholes in the tax code. But they did find some common ground, or they have been working on some common ground, in possibly pulling back some of the COVID aid money that has not been spent. And really, Ari, until now, there's been a large group of people in the room, aides from all four congressional leaders. But as I mentioned earlier, and as you just heard from uh, the speaker, that group is now shrinking. And it's just going to be the White House aides and the speaker's team. And McCarthy said he was optimistic about that change. That's kind of a big deal. But again, there is really not that much time to get this all done. And the president leaves tomorrow for Japan. The administration is warning that a breach would be a disaster for the economy. I mentioned at the top that Biden has made changes to his international trip, but hasn't canceled it. What's happening? Well, I mean, the timing is really precarious because uh, and we did get some news actually on that today, I should add. You know, the president will be at the G7 in Japan over the weekend. But a source familiar with the decision told me just this afternoon that the second half of the trip has been canceled. The president was supposed to go to Australia, but instead he's going to come back to Washington because of these talks. Biden has said reaching a deal on the debt limit is his top priority right now. And the White House is emphatic that he's going to continue to get frequent updates while he's in Japan. 
There's also pressure today coming from a group of influential business leaders to reach a deal. How does that affect these talks? I mean, it's a big deal. Wall Street has been pretty quiet on all this, you know, not wanting to come across as partisan in any way. So the fact that they're now putting their thumb on the scale is just really another signal of how urgent this is. And about 150 business leaders signed a letter to both the president and congressional leaders asking for action. You know, there's some big names on it, you know, CEOs of Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, NASDAQ. Now, they didn't actually weigh in on exactly what the leaders should do to reach a deal. Again, they don't want to be partisan, but they did emphasize that the consequences were big and that action was needed, and it was needed very fast. That is White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ori. All right. Coming up, we will hear from Germany, where five members of a crime family in Berlin were convicted today for their role in robbing more than $100 million of jewelry from a castle vault. But first, Mifepristone, sometimes known as the abortion pill. It's at the center of a legal battle underway this week. Tomorrow, attorneys gather in New Orleans at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals to argue a case about the future of access to this medication across the entire country. So, who takes Mifepristone and why? NPR asked to hear your stories, and more than 150 people wrote in. NPR reporters Selena Simmons-Duffin and Becky Sullivan spoke to some of them. Here are their stories. It took Larissa Adams and her husband a long time to get pregnant. And when she finally did, she had a miscarriage. And we thought that was going to be the end of it and that we would get pregnant again. And what ended up happening was that we spent the next four or five years getting pregnant regularly and then miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. With each one, her doctors needed to intervene to complete the miscarriage. She would take mifepristone and misoprostol, the two drugs that are used together for miscarriage management or for abortion. Sometimes she also needed a procedure called a dilation and curatage, or DNC. Eventually, she figured out she had a genetic condition. After an expensive round of IVF, she got one viable embryo. By a sheer luck? I don't know. I've always wondered. I'm like, are we the luckiest people in the world or have the worst luck? But uh, it's stuck, and now we have a three-year-old, and she's totally healthy. She says she's grateful in all those years of miscarriages that she had medication to take so she could get ready to try again. This is Becky. One big theme we saw among the responses was how Mifepristone gave people privacy. Like Alexandra, she told me about how when she was 21, she was in a relationship with an emotionally abusive boyfriend. NPR's only using her first name for professional concerns. He was controlling, he isolated her, he destroyed her self-esteem, she said. And even though they were using birth control, she got pregnant. And I was like, if I have a child with this guy, I'll never get away from him. Never. I will never get away from him. So Alexandra quietly sought an abortion. She took the pills and recovered at home in Ohio and was able to break up with him the next year. And for many people, the medication gave them a sense of control. When Michelle Brown was engaged in planning her wedding, she found out she was pregnant. At first, she said she was a little panicked. But then we, like, after doing more reading and thinking, we, were, we then got pretty excited, actually, about the pregnancy. Um, and then we found out that it was not working out. She was having a miscarriage. Her doctor told her she could just wait for the bleeding to start. But at the time, Brown lived in New Orleans, and she worked at a university about an hour away. She said the commute involved driving on these long bridges over a swamp or lake where it's hard to pull over. Every time I had to commute to and from my university, I just had all of this like 
dread, essentially, because I was like really afraid, like, what if it happens now, right? Like the cramping and the bleeding. So after a few days, she went back to her doctor to get mifepristone and misoprostol. Brown was able to take the pills in the comfort of her own home with her fiance by her side. They've since married and now have two kids. This is Selena. I also spoke to Dawn. NPR is only using her first name because she fears family and professional repercussions. Her first pregnancy was extremely complicated. She had severe preeclampsia. Her daughter was born at 29 weeks and spent months in the NICU. Dawn ended up quitting her job. You know, I spent most of my time in that year, like, trying to keep her alive, taking her to different doctor and specialist appointments. She found out she was pregnant again when her daughter was less than a year old. I knew in that moment that it would be physically, emotionally, mentally, like, devastating. She agonized over the decision, but ended up deciding to get a medication abortion at Planned Parenthood. Honestly, I feel like it saved my life. I really feel that way. Many of the people who wrote to NPR said this medication changed the course of their lives. Mifepristone's fate will be decided by federal courts in the coming months. Selena Simmons-Duffin and Becky Sullivan, NPR News. It was called the most spectacular jewel heist in German history. And today, five men were sentenced to several years in prison for their part in that brazen $123 million heist. NPR's Rob Schmitz has the story from Berlin. The Green Vault, a museum inside the Dresden Castle, founded in 1723 by Augustus the Strong of Poland and Saxony, holds the largest treasure collection in Europe. And that's what attracted a gang of thieves to break into it on November 25th, 2019. On the day of the heist, Volker Lange, Dresden's police chief, stood before reporters with a stern face detailing how the thieves broke into the museum by sawing through metal grates and then breaking a window before smashing the glass cabinets that held the Green Vault's collection of historical jewelry. Everything from a hat clasp decorated with 115 diamonds to goblets fashioned from gilded ostrich eggs. Police released footage showing two masked men using an axe to break the cabinets. A nearby electrical fire knocked out streetlights at around the time of the robbery. What they didn't find was one of the museum's most famous pieces, a 41-carat green diamond known as the Dresden Green. It was on loan to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. But the thieves did make off with 21 other jewel-studded artifacts into the cold Dresden morning. Director of Dresden State Art Collections Marion Ackerman said at the time that she was shocked at the brutality of the break-in and that the jewels the thieves made off with were of an incalculable historic and cultural value. The five men convicted today confessed to using a hydraulic cutting machine to break into the museum before setting fire to a nearby circuit breaker panel that plunged surrounding streets into darkness. They're members of what's known as the Remo Clan, a family crime network with Arab roots who've been responsible for bank robberies and department store raids in Germany in the past. In fact, one of the men convicted today, Ahmed Remo, had been sentenced to four years in prison in a separate case for stealing a 220-pound gold coin worth $4 million from a museum in Berlin in 2017. While many of the items they stole from the Green Vault have been recovered and returned to the museum, several pieces, including a rare diamond called the White Stone of Saxony, are still missing. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Coming up, the winner of NPR's 2023 Tiny Desk Contest. That's next. And in about 25 minutes, the sport of paraclimbing and the climbers who want to make it a part of the competition in the Paralympic Games. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Sleeping Beauty, on stage May 25th to June 4th at the Citizens Bank Opera House. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Stocks dropped on Wall Street today. The Dow fell a full percent. S&P lost more than six-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq dipped nearly two-tenths of a percent. Residents of the Boston area are paying far more for heating, cooling, and electricity than the national average. Today, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released data on energy prices from last Last month, it found average electricity rates were just over double the national average. Costs for natural gas in the area are 40 percent higher. On the flip side, though, gasoline prices locally are 8 percent lower than the national average. Marketplace has business news coming up at 6.30. It's now 5.20. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. Milky skies and sunshine into the evening. Clouds tonight could dip just below 50. Then tomorrow may not rise much above 62 degrees with lots of sunshine. Thursday should be a little bit milder and just as sunny. 80 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite program. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fidelity Investments. A dedicated advisor can help create a wealth plan for a full financial picture. More at Fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies find food for meetings and team lunches. With catering menus from restaurants nationwide, online ordering, and 24-7 live support. EasyCater.com. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Nearly 6,000 artists entered this year's Tiny Desk Contest. And the judges have chosen one winner, a band from Springville, Utah, called Little Moon. Count up on fingers all my days to the minute. Their song, Wonder Eye, starts small and intimate before it bursts wide open. That voice belongs to Emma Hardiman, who also plays guitar. Her husband, Nathan Hardiman, plays bass in a six-person band. Emma and Nathan, congratulations, and welcome to All Things Considered. Oh, Ari Shapiro, thank you. This is your band's fourth time entering the contest. So how did it feel this year to get that call saying, congratulations, Little Moon is the winner? Yeah, I got like shivers down my spine again. Like it's all happening again (laughs) when you're saying that. I felt so surprised, honestly. I just felt like... I was used to not winning. (laughs) So winning came as a really big shock to my system. Um, And just 
again, just entering this new realm that I've never considered exploring before. What, what, what do you mean this new realm? Oh, you know, like attention. <laughs> Fame. <laughs> like a lot of attention. Um, being seen by people. Specifically being seen by NPR. Like when you have a group of people that I think are amazing say that you're amazing. It's like this whole other realm. <laughs> it's like your crush likes you back. Yes. It, like it's your like crush, crush likes you back. That is such a good description. <laughs> Yes, it's just really exciting. It's like, you like me because I like you too. <laughs> Let's talk about the song you submitted, Wonder Eye. To where we are and where we go, wonder eye, wonder eye. And when I go, I'll give my all to the It goes through really distinct phases. Can you tell us about how it took shape? Yeah. So Wonder Eye was started during our time helping my mother-in-law with hospice. Hmm. Soon after she passed is when Nathan wrote the lyrics. Um, Wonder Eye incorporates the idea of multiple deaths. I think it took the physical death to help us realize that like death is really happening all the time, be it past versions of ourselves, old held beliefs, old judgments even. Hmm. And to that extent, we're always grieving as well, which was also kind of eye-opening. You talk about multiple kinds of deaths, including old held beliefs. I know you were both raised in the Mormon church and both leaving it around the time you wrote this song. How did that factor into the art that you created? Uh, it factored in a huge way. Um, not only was I processing the death of my mom, but the tools that I'd been taught to use to make sense of death were no longer as relevant to me. So my belief system, which once was very clear about this is what happens when you die and this is what you can, you know, you can expect to see your family again exactly as they were. Like I was no longer as certain about that. So the, the lyrics to this song are really a reminder for me to sit with that uncertainty because my instinct is to replace uncertainty with something that doesn't upset us so much, but accepting uncertainty, accepting ambiguity, making peace with the mystery of life and death, I think that can be a really healing thing to do simply because life is so uncertain. It's this lovely lyric, is there a knowledge that is found not in knowing? Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything. <laughs> so, I mean, we don't it, know if we're talking to you right now, Ari. <laughs> but yeah, there's like a lot of things that I once quote unquote knew, I don't know anymore. And I don't know if I will ever know. <laughs> Knowing that is a step toward finding acceptance and peace with, with the mystery of life. 
Is there something paradoxical about taking all of that uncertainty, that not knowing, that grief, and channeling it into something that becomes a definitive winner? That's like, you know, like, well, you know you won the Tiny Desk Contest with this song about not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because I I know I've been taught in my life that if you want to win, you got to know stuff. Yeah. You know, and you got to be good at stuff. And and like, so, you know, the imposter syndrome is striking hard right now because I don't know things. And I can tell myself like, well, I'm not even that good at playing bass or playing guitar like I can really get in my head sometimes but hmm. yeah making peace with whatever comes my way that's that's what I want to do yeah no yeah it, it'll get you famous <laughs> <laughs> for past tiny desk contest winners this moment has been a real career turning point and so if the previous phase of your career was being local and appreciated by a few what do you want to bring to the wider audience that you are about to reach through the Tiny Desk Concert you're going to perform at NPR headquarters, through the Tiny Desk Contest on the Road Tour that you're going to take in June? Like, what are you hoping to offer? I guess <laughs> to stick with the theme, I'm hoping to just offer my humanity and my sincerity. Um I used to be really ashamed, perhaps, of being a little, you know, frazzled or a little messy. And even my hair can be pretty messy. And that's what I want to present to, uh, I guess, the world at large is simply my humanity and doing my best to celebrate what it means to just simply be human. If I can bring that sort of acceptance to myself and also project it outward into the world, I would, I would count that as a success. Nathan and Emma Hardiman of the band Little Moon. They're this year's Tiny Desk Contest winners. They're going to play their Tiny Desk Concert soon, and you can catch them on the road headlining the annual Tiny Desk Contest on the road tour starting in June. Emma and Nathan, it's been so good talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. Support for NPR and the Tiny Desk Contest comes from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. Capital One is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. And from Guayaquil, maker of Yerba Mate, who believe community comes to life and connections are made through music. Guayaquil, come to life. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. How to cover a former president who tried to overthrow an election and is now a candidate again. Media critic Dan Frumkin says CNN's recent town hall is not the way to do it. It was a totally predictable disaster. We thought the media had learned a lesson. You just don't give them an open mic. In post-January 6th America, how should the media report on the Trump candidacy now? That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, the head of the popular artificial intelligence company ChatGPT told members of Congress today about the risks and rewards of AI. Sam Altman, speaking to a Senate Intelligence Committee this afternoon, predicts AI won't be a jobs killer, as some believe, 
but thinks more jobs will be created on the other side. Altman says regulatory intervention by governments will be critical to mitigate the risks of these powerful new tools. We understand that people are anxious about how it could change the way we live. We are too. But we believe that we can and must work together to identify and manage the potential downsides so that we can all enjoy the tremendous upsides. Lawmakers express concerns about the ability of the latest crop of AI tools to mislead people as well as spread falsehoods. Senior leaders from Germany, France, Britain, and several other European nations are meeting in Iceland today for a summit. NPR's Lauren Freyer tells us the two-day summit is aimed at showing support for Ukraine. This is only the fourth time the Council of Europe has met since its founding after World War II. The focus this time is on Ukraine, and that country's president is speaking to the council by video link. Russia's membership in the council was suspended the day after it invaded Ukraine last year. Remaining members are spending these two days documenting damage, injury and loss to Ukraine, and outlining legal and judicial ways to go after Moscow. But another topic may also come up. Turkey, it's a council member too, but also faces possible suspension over the jailing of a businessman philanthropist. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London. Stocks finished lower across the board on Wall Street today as debt ceiling negotiations in Washington ended without a deal. The Dow lost 336 points, down 1 percent. Tech-heavy Nasdaq down about two-tenths. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The top federal law enforcement officer in the state is stepping down. U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins plans to resign by the end of this week. WBUR's Walter Wuthman has more. Rollins has been the subject of a months-long ethics investigation by the Department of Justice for her appearance at a Democratic political fundraiser last year featuring First Lady Jill Biden. The results of the probe have not been released, but Rollins' lawyer says she plans to submit a letter of resignation to President Biden by Friday. She addressed the investigation at a media roundtable last year. For me, my only regret is that this office that has done tremendous work, um, I don't want them distracted by what is happening with respect to me. Rollins is the first black woman to serve as the U.S. attorney for Massachusetts. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Following this afternoon's announcement, Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren issued a joint statement saying they respect Rollins' decision. They add Rollins has for years dedicated herself to the people of Massachusetts and equal justice under the law. The state's highest court says indictments tied to a 2015 altercation and cover-up involving Springfield police officers can stand. Officer Derek Gentry Mitchell and bar owner Joseph Sullivan were accused of lying to police and to the FBI about what happened after the fight between a group of off-duty officers and black bar patrons. A lower court dismissed the charges of misleading investigators over questions about the indictment's wording, but the Supreme Judicial Court said in ruling today that the indictments were indeed proper. Seventy-five families in Boston are new homeowners thanks to help from the city. Mayor Michelle Wu announced today the city has used more than $2 million to help the families pay down payments and closing costs. The assistance also helps reduce interest rates on mortgages. The money came from the American Rescue Plan Act. Of the 75 new homeowners, more than 50 of them are black, indigenous, or people of color. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. 
Lots of hazy sunshine, then a cloudy night ahead tonight. Breezy, cooler, just under 50. Tomorrow should stay on the cooler side, only reaching 62 degrees with more sunshine. This is WBUR. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. In a moment, we'll head to Kentucky, where athletes are training for the 2028 Paralympics. We'll meet Paralympians who are hopeful that climbing may be added to the Games. But first... The chairman of... We have seen what happens when technology outpaces regulation. (laughs) The chairman of a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee, Richard Blumenthal, that's who you just heard, opened a congressional hearing today on artificial intelligence with these remarks. Let's hear them again. Too often, we have seen what happens when technology outpaces regulation. But you know what? That is not Senator Blumenthal. This is... If you were listening from home, you might have thought that voice was mine and the words from me. But in fact... That voice was not mine. The words were not mine. This marks possibly the first time AI-generated audio was used to deliver an opening statement in Congress. Blumenthal was illustrating how the technology can be used to mimic someone's voice, one of many concerns raised during today's hearing. Joining us now is NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales, who has been covering this issue and joins us now. Hey, Claudia. Hey, Elsa. And I trust this is the true Claudia Grisales speaking to me right now. (laughs) Now, much of today's hearing was focused on Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI. OpenAI, that's the company behind ChatGPT. Altman was testifying for the first time before Congress. What did lawmakers say to him? So they had a lot of questions surrounding these worries of where this technology could go wrong, especially without guardrails in place. They listed out concerns from the impact on the labor market that AI will replace workers to the spread of election disinformation and also the impact it could have on artists and their work product and whether it could be stolen. The panel's top Republican, Josh Hawley, said it is up to Congress and Americans to decide if this technology becomes an innovative breakthrough like the printing press or... Is it going to be more like the atom bomb? Huge technological breakthrough, but the consequences, severe, terrible, continue to haunt us to this day. And we heard Blumenthal at the top there using that AI-generated audio, and it did draw some chuckles and smiles from the audience at that moment. But he said he's also worried it could be used, this kind of technology, to steal someone's voice for more nefarious purposes. Absolutely. Well, how did Allman respond to all these concerns from lawmakers? He said his company was founded on the belief that AI can improve lives, but also it brings risks in terms of what needs to be managed. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. And we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. But we we try to be very clear eyed 
about what the downside case is and the work that we have to do to mitigate that. And he acknowledged that regulation could help mitigate these risks while still allowing AI to grow the U.S. economy. For example, he predicted there will be there will be far greater jobs in the future with AI, arguing that current models like his are a tool and that the current version of ChatGBT will help with tasks with people in their current jobs. But he didn't rule out that there could be future concerns, and he agreed that AI companies could submit to testing models or new licensing agreements or be overseen by a new government regulatory body. And he also said the most powerful AI models must adhere to safety models, uh, safety models and companies must behave responsibly. And with more powerful systems, the landscape will change. Okay, so it's clear a lot of people care about this. What are the next steps here for Congress? So lawmakers are really at the earliest stages of trying to develop comprehensive AI legislation, and the U.S. is woefully behind other places such as the European Union. And if we look at past examples of Congress trying to regulate emerging Mm -hmm. technology, it's made a lot of mistakes. So it's not clear they'll be able to catch up this time. That is NPR's Claudia Grisales. Thank you so much, Claudia. Thank you. As athletes prepare for next year's Olympic and Paralympic Summer Games in Paris, some competitors are looking beyond that to 2028. They're hoping that their sport of paraclimbing will be included in those games. This week's Paraclimbing World Cup in Salt Lake City is an important step closer. Emily Chen-Newton reports on the sport's chances for Paralympic inclusion. Ropes and rigging equipment clap against the walls of the Lescalade Climbing Gym in Lexington, Kentucky. The after-work crowd hasn't arrived yet, but Alex Dornbush is here, training for his next competition. He tightens the Velcro on his climbing shoes and dusts a thin layer of chalk onto each hand. Dornbush is a paraclimber. He competes in the category for those with severe limitations to their range and power. Those limitations, however, don't apply to his competitive spirit. I am the ultimate trash talker. That stuff just fuels my fire, man. Because of a traumatic brain injury in high school, Dornbush can only rely on the right side of his body for quick, dynamic moves, while forcing his left side to hold steady. His partner in the gym loops their rope through a metal safety device and Dornbush scans the route, planning his path up the 60-foot wall. When he starts to climb, he matches his movements to his breath. (sighs) 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 After his brain injury, Dornbush dedicated himself to soccer and made it on the U.S. Paralympic team. He missed playing at the London 2012 Games due to an injury, so he wants another shot at the Paralympics. Sonny Young wants his turn, too, He's training next to Dornbush in the same gym. Young and his wife settled in rural Kentucky after immigrating from China because he fell in love with the region's sandstone cliffs. He calls climbing his sole sport. Climbing, you don't compare with other people. You compare with yourself. Make yourself become better and better. In 2015, he was hit by a car while out for a run and was told because of a spinal cord injury, he would likely never use his arms or legs again. Heartbreaking news for such an avid climber. So he turned his sport into his rehab. Little by little, climbing helped me to move my bodies. Honestly, if I don't climb, maybe I'm still paralyzed. 
For many paraclimbers, like Dornbush and Young, their sport actually makes the rest of life more livable. Especially like the first couple times I climbed, I noticed how much better I felt. Every second, even now, I was fighting. You don't know, I was fighting. So I want to go to climb because climb make me concentrate on the next move, which make me temporarily forget this uncomfortable feeling. If I want to leave, I have to climb. Being chosen as an additional sport in the Paralympics is a possible pathway to the official lineup later. But a lot rides on the upcoming Salt Lake competition, says Marco Scaleris, the president of the International Federation of Sport Climbing. He says being chosen would show a global audience. That it's a sport where actually you really can be part of the community, no matter you have a disability, you don't have a disability, then could change the life for, for many people. So not only would its addition to the games allow athletes to push their limits, but as Scalaris emphasizes, it could open the door for someone with a disability who never thought that they could climb to put on some tiny Velcro shoes and give it a try. For NPR News, I'm Emily Chen Newton in Lexington, Kentucky. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. U.S. officials say they've seen a drop in the number of migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border in the first few days since the end of Title 42. That was a provision that was used during the pandemic to quickly expel migrants. But one small community in rural Maine is still struggling after more than 100 asylum seekers arrived unannounced earlier this month. Ari Snyder of Maine Public Radio has the story. On a recent afternoon, dozens of asylum seekers are waiting inside City Hall in Sanford, Maine, hoping to get housing assistance. Among them is a man named Simfor from Gabon. He and other asylum seekers gave only their first names due to their ongoing immigration cases. Simfor and his wife are among thousands of people from Central and Southern Africa who have sought refuge in Maine over the last several years, many fleeing violence, political repression, and human rights abuses in their home countries. Simfur says he and his wife arrived just days ago in Portland and tried to find shelter there. Everything's full, he says. There's nowhere to take us in. Simfur says he and his wife paid a stranger to drive them to Sanford, joining dozens of others after word spread that better housing options could be found there. Some had been staying in crowded shelters in Portland. Others, like Simfor, say they were turned away from shelters already at capacity. He says generally information passes by word of mouth, and someone said that help could be found in Sanford. What followed is one version of a story playing out across the country, from El Paso to Denver to New York, as city staff and aid groups struggle to support growing numbers of asylum seekers, who, under federal law, have to wait months before receiving work authorization, and whose asylum cases can drag on for years in an oversaturated immigration court system. Except in this case, it played out in Sanford, a city of about 20,000 people in a rural corner of southern Maine, whose general assistance office consists of two employees. That office is completely overwhelmed in there. They have a backlog of appointments. During an emergency city council meeting Tuesday night, city manager Stephen Buck said Sanford had placed about 100 people in temporary shelter in local motels, but quickly ran out of space. There's no further capacity for hotel rooms or other housing options here in our community. Some asylum seekers did find their way back to shelters in Portland, but others, including an Angolan man named Landu, said they were stranded. 
We're going to have to sleep here, he says. We're going to sleep here on the street. We don't have anywhere to go. What happened in Sanford is unprecedented. Mufalo Cheatham runs the Maine Immigrants' Rights Coalition. She says as larger service centers run out of shelter space, people will go wherever they think help is available. And in the heat of the moment, people make decisions, you know, just part of human nature. This is just being human. And she says the pressure on aid groups and municipalities across the country to respond is likely to grow. In Maine, Cheatham is urging greater coordination from the state in managing asylum seeker resettlement. She says there was nothing unique about Sanford, and as migrants continue to struggle to find housing in Portland and other cities across the country, this type of situation could well happen again. In Portland, an Angolan man named Miguel was directed to put his name on a list for emergency shelter, but wasn't optimistic about his prospects. It's the same thing, he says. They're going to say there's no room. That night, Miguel says he ended up sleeping in a parking lot. For NPR News, I'm Ari Snyder in Portland, Maine. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Police say they're being poisoned by exposure to fentanyl while responding to drug cases. Some experts say that that is not so. That story is coming up in just about 20 minutes on WBUR. It's 548. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod. bu.edu slash SSW. Red Sox host the Seattle Mariners again tonight for the second game of a three-game set. Nick Pavetta throws the first pitch at 7-10. Luis Castillo pitches for Seattle. Celtics knocked out the Philadelphia 76ers from the playoffs on Sunday, and that loss has prompted the firing of the Phillies head coach Doc Rivers. Today, the Sixers parted ways with the coach of three seasons. Rivers had a two-year, two years left on his contract. He coached the Celtics from 2004 to 2013 and led Boston to an NBA title in 2008. In the forecast, lots more hazy sunshine out there. Clouds overnight tonight, breezy and cooler, just under 50 degrees tomorrow. On the cool side, sunny once again, temperatures about 62 degrees. It is right now 79 degrees in Boston at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com WBUR. Kwame Alexander is a familiar voice as NPR's poet in residence. He's also a celebrated author of young adult novels. I'm winning all these awards for my books, but I wasn't happy. And I didn't know what to do about it, and so... That's where the writing started. Writing that became a memoir holding up a mirror to parenting. Why Fathers Cry at Night, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The new novel, Yellow Face, is about a thief. Namely, June Hayward, a writer, not a particularly successful writer. The other key character is Athena Liu, a spectacularly successful writer. Now, these two went to Yale together. They are friends, kind of, until Athena dies by choking on a pancake with June watching and with the manuscript of her next book, a masterpiece that no one, not even her editor, has seen yet. 
typed and neatly stacked in the next room. Well, the author of Yellow Face is R.F. Kwong, and I want to say welcome to All Things Considered. Thanks so much for having me. So in a nutshell, what happens next? Well, June decides to steal Athena's unpublished manuscript and pass it off as her own, all the while passing herself off as Chinese American when she's not. And then we get into a roller coaster of all the absurdities about publishing, all the scandals, all the lies people tell, and the online pile-ons that happens when people are found to be guilty of wrongdoing. You nodded to something there that she tries to pass herself off as... Chinese-American. She changes her name, which was June Hayward. She publishes the book as Juniper Song, which could, you know, maybe be Asian. She gets this new author glamour shot where she looks really tan, like maybe racially ambiguous. Does she know what she's doing? She's extremely aware of what she's doing, and she's doing it deliberately. I think there is this strange myth that diversity is what's selling and that in order to get opportunities, especially in hyper-competitive industries like publishing, you have to get your way through the door by pretending to be an ethnic identity that you don't have. Now, where this myth came from is puzzling to me because we know from industry reports every year it's still overwhelmingly in your advantage to be white in publishing. But we see over and over again white writers adopting monikers that make them sound Asian or make them sound non-white or have different backgrounds. That makes me wonder, what is it about a different racial identity that can be commodified and turned into something that makes you exotic and special and marketable? Mm. Um, I mean, she has, by the time the book is published, rewritten significant portions of it, created wholly original new portions of it. She's done the research. She's added so much she starts to forget which words actually she wrote and which words were originally Athena's. On a certain level, is she the author? Or does, does she deserve at least co-billing? June feels strongly that she should be able to publish this book under her own name because she's the one who got it into publication shape. And on some levels, she's right. The original manuscript was messy. It was incomplete. So the final product isn't Athena's alone. It would have been fair for them to share credit. June isn't being completely delusional when she thinks the final product is something that she gets to claim. People may be gathering June is not the most likable character. She's not the most <laughs> likable narrator. Why did you want to write her? I love writing unlikable narrators, but the trick here is it's much more fun to follow a character that does have a sympathetic background, that does think reasonable thoughts about half the time, because then you're compelled to follow their logic to the horrible decisions they are making. I'm also thinking a lot about a very common voice in female led psychological thrillers because I, I always really love reading widely around the genre that I'm trying to make an intervention in. And I noticed there's this voice that comes up over and over again, and it's a very nasty, condescending protagonist that you see repeated across works. And I'm thinking of protagonists like the main character of Gone Girl, the main character of The Girl in the Window. I am trying to take all those tropes and inject them all into, again, a singular white female protagonist who is deeply unlikable and try to crack the code of what makes her so interesting to listen to regardless. 
Yeah. Um, Athena is not the most likable character either, um, aside from the fact that she dies pretty early in the book. We glimpse a lot of who she was through kind of flashbacks. I, I saw where you said she's your worst nightmare, that she's all the things you hope will never be true of yourself. How so? Athena's kind of a brat. She's also a terrible friend. I really wanted to subvert the idea of a perfect, innocent victim. I wanted to turn the question around and ask, can we talk about appropriation and stealing stories when we remove it from the question of race? And Athena has done quite a lot of stealing each other's stories. She did something very cruel to June when they were undergrads that really has no ethical excuse. Now, the part of her that I'm terrified of becoming is is the part that is so isolated and narcissistic about her own success that she loses any touch with her community. Almost every other Asian American character in the novel does not have very nice things to say about Athena either. And it's because she had this Cinderella story of overnight celebrity and it's messed with her head a bit. And she's used to being the only Asian American in the room. She's used to being the special token and she views anyone else as a threat. She doesn't want to be a supportive member of her own community. And that's horrifying to me. I hope that never becomes true of me. The sly winked at, never quite said out loud joke here is you have written a novel about a white woman who writes about Chinese people and gets slammed for cultural appropriation. Um, It does not escape my notice that you are an Asian woman who is writing a man character who is white. Were you deliberately stirring the pot, trying to invert all the questions about appropriation and racism and who gets to write which stories? Oh, yeah. I think it's hilarious that all of our assumptions about who gets to do cultural appropriation or when something counts as cultural appropriation kind of go away when you invert who is of what identity. And I think that a lot of our standards about cultural appropriation, our language about don't write outside of your own lane, you can only write about this experience if you've had that experience, I don't think they make a lot of sense. I think they're actually quite limiting and harmful and backfire more often on marginalized writers than they push forward conversations about widening opportunities. You would see Asian American writers being told that you can't write anything except about immigrant trauma or or the difficulties of being Asian American in the U.S. And I think that's anathema to what fiction should be. I think fiction should be about imagining outside our own perspectives, stepping into other people's shoes and empathizing with the other. So I, I really don't love arguments that reduce people to their identities or set strict permissions of what you can and can't write about. And, and I'm playing with that argument by doing the exact thing that June is accused of writing about an experience that isn't hers. <laughs> We've been speaking with R.F. Kwong. Her new novel is Yellow Face. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie. Angie's list is now Angie dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From the Nature Conservancy, 
partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises, committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from the United States Postal Service, reinventing its network with shipping options designed to keep businesses moving forward. USPS, delivering for America. USPS.com slash moving forward. This is WBUR. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, well, now you can do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it at the App Store. Be careful if you're cooking out tonight. There is a higher than usual risk of brush fires for the state, except for the Cape and Islands. Sunset is one of the most risky times of the day. The red flag warning is in effect until 8 o'clock tonight. It's 5.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The former leaders of two failed banks get grilled by lawmakers on Capitol Hill. Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren pushed the former CEO of the Silicon Valley Bank to give back some of the salary from the years before the collapse. How much of the $40 million are you planning to return? How many times are we going to do this dance? Senator, I promise to cooperate with the regulators as they do. Are you planning to return a single nickel? This is WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, there's widespread fear among police that they could be poisoned by fentanyl as they respond to drug cases. I mean, imagine you do a job every day where you just think being near a certain car or being near a certain person could kill you. Meanwhile, medical experts say this danger has been exaggerated. Also, farewell to the man known as the godfather of poker. It's 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The respective sides are still apparently far apart, but House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says a deal on raising the nation's borrowing limit and averting a costly budget crisis is still possible by week's end. Emerging from a meeting at the White House today with President Biden and other congressional leaders, the Speaker outlined what happens next. The President agreed to um, appoint a couple people from his administration to sit down and negotiate directly with uh, my team, so I found that to be productive, personally. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries was among those attending today's meeting. We all agreed that default is not an acceptable option and must be avoided. The meeting lasted less than an hour. Meanwhile, the White House says President Biden will attend the G7 summit in Japan, but Biden will cancel a scheduled trip to Australia, allowing him to return to Washington Sunday. The Biden administration has approved a permit for a controversial natural gas pipeline in Virginia and West Virginia. From West Virginia Public Broadcasting, Curtis Tate has more. Weeks after it got a favorable environmental review from the U.S. Forest Service, the Mountain Valley Pipeline now has a permit to cross the Jefferson National Forest. The 3.5-mile segment is key to the completion of the 300-mile, $6.6 billion pipeline. 
Environmental and community groups have opposed it because of its potential effects on rivers and streams, as well as the climate impacts of producing and burning natural gas. The project is a top priority for Senator Joe Manchin. The West Virginia Democrat is often a decisive vote for President Joe Biden. Manchin recently criticized the Biden administration's energy policies, including new limits on carbon dioxide emissions from power plants. For NPR News, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston, West Virginia. Russia claims its forces destroyed a Patriot surface-to-air missile defense system during overnight strikes on Ukraine. NPR's Janik Kikisis reports from Dnipro. The Ukrainians say they shot down 18 Russian missiles overnight, including six hypersonic missiles. The Russian military news outlet Zvezda quoted the Russian defense ministry as saying it had aimed its strikes at Ukrainian soldiers and ammunition storage sites. But the Ukrainians say none of these missiles hit their targets. Valery Zaluzhny, commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, said they were all shot down. The Patriot system, which was supplied by the U.S., has already shot down hypersonic Kinjal missiles in the past. Russia claims these missiles are unstoppable. Officials in the capital, Kyiv, said the strikes were exceptionally intense there, but that no one was hurt. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News. Nipro. Stocks lost ground today in part over continued concerns over the debt ceiling crisis in Washington. The Dow dropped 336 points. The Nasdaq was down 22 points. The S&P 500 closed down 26 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins is resigning after a months-long ethics investigation. The Department of Justice has been looking into Rollins' participation in a Democratic fundraiser last year that featured First Lady Jill Biden. A lawyer for Rollins says she's resigning because the work of the office is too important to be overshadowed. Massachusetts U.S. Senators Ed Markey and Elizabeth Warren issued a joint statement saying they respect her decision. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey says her office is in ongoing talks on Beacon Hill over the state budget for the next fiscal year. She says her office is speaking with Senate President Karen Spilka and the Speaker of the House Ron Mariano about the three proposals on the table. WBR's Amanda Beeland reports those include one from each chamber and one that the governor proposed. Governor Healy tells Radio Boston she was pleased to see both proposals from the legislature. There's a lot of overlap, both overlap in important investments we need to make in workforce, in education, in infrastructure. The more than $56 billion House budget prioritizes spending from lottery sales and the so-called millionaire's tax for the MBTA and universal school meals. The $55.8 billion Senate budget would allow all Massachusetts students, regardless of immigration status, to qualify for in-state tuition. It's a proposal that Healy supports. I think it's absolutely essential and a no-brainer. In fact, 23 other states already do this. A final budget must be in place by July 1st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. Massachusetts Secretary of State Bill Galvin says Boston's slow pace of redrawing its political district map would force could force the city to delay its preliminary election this September. A city council committee that was supposed to meet today to talk about the issue canceled the meeting. Galvin warns if the council doesn't speed things up, the courts may have to intervene to redraw the map. Last week, a federal court blocked a map the city approved last year, saying it potentially violates the Voting Rights Act. City officials have proposed three new maps for the city council to consider in the past few days. The mayor's office says a new district map has to be approved by the end of the month to avoid delaying September's election. And firefighters in Lynn say a brush fire in the Lynn Woods Reservation is contained, at least for now. It started Friday. 
In a tweet this afternoon, the fire department says state police helped knock down the fire by dropping water on the flames from a helicopter. There are no reports of injuries or damage to nearby homes. The cause is under investigation. In nearby Saugus, firefighters continue to battle a brush fire in the Breakheart Reservation. In the forecast, clouds taking over tonight. Temperatures heading downward to the upper 40s tonight. Tomorrow should only make it to the low 60s. A good share of sunshine, slightly milder and still sunny on Thursday. This is WBUR 79 degrees now at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Coming up, we'll remember a legendary card player known as the godfather of poker. But first, we turn to Capitol Hill. That's right. That's where the leaders of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank testify today. And they got a chilly reception, to say the least. You see, about two months ago, both banks failed. That shocked markets and sparked turmoil that still has not let up. NPR's David Gura has been watching the hearing and joins us now. Hey, David. Hey, Elsa. So what were the big revelations in today's hearing? Well, many senators are eager to channel anger about what's happened here into action to get these executives to return some of the tens of millions of dollars they made. The senators highlighted the fact that these two failures cost more than $16 billion, money other banks will have to pay back. Some senators suggested the government should claw back some of that compensation Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts asked Greg Becker, who used to run Silicon Valley Bank, if he would give some of that money back. How much of the $40 million are you planning to return? How many times are we going to do this dance? Senator, I promise to cooperate with the regulators as they do. Are you planning to return a single nickel to what you cost the fund? Senator, I know there's going to be a process review of compensation. I'll take that as a no. Also, Senator Warren noted she and other senators on both sides of the aisle have introduced legislation that would make it possible for the government to claw back executive compensation. Michael Barr, the Federal Reserve's vice chair for supervision, also brought up clawbacks at another hearing that took place on Capitol Hill today, this one with top banking regulators. He told the House Financial Services Committee the bonuses executives collected were, quote, outrageous, and he said the Fed is investigating them. Okay, so the gist, it sounds like, is there was not a lot of love for these executives from these no, senators. No, <laughs> no love and a lot of outrage. The regulators had to step in to rescue depositors of these two lenders. I mean, many lawmakers said these bankers were not serious about the risks they faced. And at one point, to illustrate that, Republican Senator John Kennedy of Louisiana played a clip from this bizarre video that Signature Bank executives made for staff, kind of a strange Broadway-style send-up of how Signature Bank was founded. What possible fate will become of our bank other than to diminish and fail? happen to know for a fact that won't happen. (laughs) Of course, uh, it did happen. And the voice at the end there saying Signature Bank would not fail was one of today's witnesses, the bank's former chairman. Uh, Like many of his colleagues on the committee, Kennedy's primary target was Greg Becker, the former CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, the first one that failed. Kennedy accused Becker of mismanaging the bank's investments, especially investments in government bonds, which left the bank exposed to a bank run. Senator, there were a series of events, unprecedented events that occurred that led us to where we are today. No, this wasn't unprecedented. This was bone deep down to the marrow, stupid. 
Becker said he was sorry about what happened, Elsa, but he and the two former executives from Signature Bank did not take responsibility. Instead, they blamed the unprecedented speed at which depositors withdrew their money, which they said would have been a challenge for any bank. Huh. Okay, so the executives may not be taking responsibility, but I guess at least the regulators are, right? As you said, they were also on the Hill today. How did that go over? Yeah, the Fed faulted regulators in this major report. Many Republican lawmakers said they're worried the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank will result in too much regulation. And they accused regulators of being asleep at the wheel. That's something that Republican senators echoed today. We'll get a chance to grill regulators at a Senate Banking Committee hearing on Thursday. All right. To be continued. That is NPR's David Gura. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. There is widespread fear among police that they could be poisoned with fentanyl while on the job. The powerful drug is common on the streets these days, and fentanyl is often present when officers respond to an overdose. But medical experts say the danger to first responders has been exaggerated. They worry a fentanyl panic is harming police and putting the public at risk. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann reports. Last December, Officer Courtney Bannock was on the job for the Tavares Police Department in Florida when she came into contact with powdered street fentanyl. The footage from another cop's body camera is frightening. She's ODing, officers say. Bannock is lowered to the ground and treated with Narcan, a medication that quickly reverses most opioid fentanyl overdoses. Keep breathing. Speaking in December with WKMG News in Orlando, Bannock said she's lucky to be alive. If I didn't have backup there, I wouldn't be here today. The Tavares Police Department declined NPR's request for interviews, as did Bannock. Reports like this one of police being harmed by fentanyl occur regularly across the U.S. With the synthetic opioid now present in most of the country, many officers clearly believe they're in real danger. But Dr. Ryan Marino says the science shows police aren't being accidentally poisoned by fentanyl on the job. This has never happened. There has never been an overdose through skin contact or accidentally inhaling fentanyl. Marino is a toxicologist and emergency room physician who studies addiction at Case Western Reserve University. He says it's understandable police are afraid. Fentanyl is incredibly powerful. That's why tens of thousands of people overdose every year when using the street version of the drug. But it's actually really hard to get fentanyl into the body. That's why people addicted to the drug often smoke it or inject it using needles. So fentanyl does not pass through the skin efficiently or well. The dry powder form that is encountered in street drugs is not going to cross through the skin in any meaningful way. Researchers also say fentanyl powder doesn't poison people when it's airborne like dust. Brandon Del Pozo was a former police chief who studies addiction at Brown University. There's never been uh, a toxicologically confirmed case. The idea of it hanging in the air and getting breathed in, it's just highly, highly implausible. It's nearly impossible. NPR reached out to the Tavares, Florida Police Department and Officer Bannock asking for toxicology reports or other information confirming she was affected by fentanyl. They declined to make that medical information public. We contacted numerous other law enforcement and government agencies and researchers around the country and couldn't find a single case of a police officer who overdosed on fentanyl confirmed by toxicology reports. A spokesperson for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention told NPR the agency does believe a small number of first responders nationwide have experienced real symptoms after encountering fentanyl on the job. None of those cases involved overdoses. None were life-threatening. Del Pozo, the former police chief, believes the most serious risk to police officers isn't accidental overdose. It's anxiety and stress caused by misinformation about fentanyl. I mean, imagine you 
do a job every day. We would just think you know, being near a certain car or being near a certain person could kill you. Is is a real mental health problem for officers. The 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 good fortune is that it's it's just just not necessary to have that fear. Del Pozo says many reported fentanyl overdoses among police involve symptoms that look more like panic attacks than opioid overdoses. Experts say this heightened fear began when the first fentanyl warnings were issued by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration half a decade ago. Fentanyl is deadly. Exposure to an amount equivalent to a few grains of sand can kill you. Chuck Rosenberg, head of the DEA under Presidents Obama and Trump, urged local cops to treat fentanyl as a major risk. It is extremely dangerous to users and to those who simply come into contact with it. If you're a first responder, that could be you. In 2017, just a few months after that video was posted, toxicology researchers issued a report contradicting the government's assessment, concluding that the danger to law enforcement from street fentanyl is extremely low. Ryan Marino, the toxicologist and emergency room physician at Case Western, says fear of fentanyl is making it harder for police to do their jobs protecting the public. I have seen that play out in reality where someone who is truly experiencing an overdose, someone who has overdosed on fentanyl, will not be resuscitated appropriately or in a timely manner because of this fear that getting close to them, touching them, could cause some sort of secondhand overdose. With fentanyl deaths still at record levels, local police are often the first responders on the scene. Experts say how they're trained, how they view the dangers of fentanyl, and how they do their jobs could mean life or death for many people with addiction. The CDC says it's updating guidelines for first responders encountering fentanyl. That new information is expected in the next month. Brian Mann, NPR News. The man known to some as the godfather of poker has died. Doyle Brunson's career, in many ways, parallels the trajectory of the game he played, from an illicit backroom card game to a widely televised sport. Brunson didn't start out as a card player. He played college basketball and was on track to join the Minneapolis Lakers in the 1950s. Then he broke his leg, and that injury set him on a different path. He started out small, playing weekend poker games around Texas. It was a reputational risk at the time, as he said on the show, poker superstars. People that you thought were your friends actually looked down on you because they thought you were some kind of a gangster or something because you were a poker player. He did encounter some gangsters while frequenting illegal games. He said he got arrested multiple times, got cheated and robbed. Once at a farmhouse in Austin, he says seven guys in ski masks took the player's money and held Brunson at gunpoint. So he had one of those old-fashioned shotguns where you cock the hammers, and he cocked both of the hammers on his double-barrel shotgun. He said it right here between my eyes. He said, I said, who runs this poker game? And I told him, that guy right down there in the green shirt. <laughs> so... Everybody laughed about it for years. Soon, though, Brunson and the game took on a higher stature with the 1970 launch of the World Series of Poker. He went on to win 10 World Series tournaments, picking up the nickname Texas Dolly. And he became the first player to win a million dollars in tournament play. He wrote about his strategies. His book, called Super System, appeared in the opening scenes of the 1998 gambling film Rounders, with Matt Damon pulling a wad of $100 bills out of the book. If you can't spot the sucker in your first half, half hour at the table, then you are the sucker. In 2006, the site Gutshot Poker asked Brunson if he had plans to retire. No, I'll I, I retire when I can't win any longer. And until then, I, I, I plan on just keep playing. 
And keep playing, he did. He even entered the World Series of Poker in 2021, though he did not win. He finished his career with more than $6 million in tournament earnings. Doyle Brunson died Sunday in Las Vegas. He was 89. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. A record low 21% of adults think it's a good time to buy a house. Coming up at 6.30 on Marketplace, a look at the downstream effects of low confidence in the real estate market. Again, Marketplace starts at 6.30. It's now 6.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. Stocks dropped on Wall Street today. The Dow fell a full percent. S&P lost more than six-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq dipped nearly two-tenths of a percent. Employees of the REI store in Boston's Fenway neighborhood have voted to organize. Yesterday, workers of the Outdoor Gear Co-op voted to join the United Food and Commercial Workers International Union. They say they want consistent hours, sustainable wages, and improved store safety. A company statement says REI will support workers as they begin the collective bargaining process. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Listen to Violation, a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project, a story about two families and a crime that's bound them together for decades. Listen to Violation wherever you get your podcasts. A cloudy night coming up tonight, breezy and cooler, just under 50 degrees. Tomorrow should stay on the cooler side, only reaching 62 with mostly sunny skies. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Walden Local Meat, supporting local food in our communities by hand-delivering local, sustainable meat and seafood right to your door. WaldenLocalMeat.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. A lot of people would like to have a simpler way to pay their taxes, especially if it were free. Well, the IRS is developing its own free filing system that would allow taxpayers to sidestep commercial offerings like TurboTax. The agency plans a limited test of the program next year. It is sure to face stiff opposition from the $14 billion tax preparation industry. NPR's Scott Horsley is here to explain. Hey, Scott. Hi, Ari. So what is the IRS's goal here? Well, the tax collector is looking for a way to make it easier and more affordable for people to file their tax returns. Uh, Right now, the average taxpayer spends about eight hours and $140 a year just prepping their return or having somebody else do it for them. Lots of other countries already have a free government-run filing option, and the National Taxpayer Advocate has long urged the IRS to offer one. So this is a baby step in that direction. Uh, Next year's pilot program will likely be limited in scope. Even if the program's ultimately expanded, it would be strictly optional. IRS Commissioner Danny Werfel stressed, if you like your tax preparer, you can keep him. Taxpayers will always have choices for how they file their taxes. They can use tax software. They can use a trusted tax professional. They can use a paper tax return. We'd rather they file them electronically, sure, but they have that choice. So he's saying filers have choices. They don't have to use the new system. Why might somebody opt out of it? 
Not everybody trusts the IRS to handle their taxes. Uh, some worry the tax collector might not help them find the biggest refund or the smallest tax bill like a commercial preparer. But an IRS survey did find nearly three out of four taxpayers are at least somewhat interested or very interested in having a free government-run filing option. With so much interest, why has it taken so long? Well, the commercial tax preparation industries fought long and hard to keep the IRS from going down this road. Uh, they spent a lot of money on lobbying. Two decades ago, companies like H&R Block and Intuit, the maker of TurboTax, even agreed to build their own free filing system in exchange for a promise from the IRS to stay out of the business. Uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren says that free file system has been a flop. That was supposed to make filing free for 70% of taxpayers. But today... That free file program serves just 2% of Americans. And that's because the tax prep companies sabotaged the program so they could keep raking in money. Last year, TurboTax paid $141 million to settle a complaint that it advertised free tax filing, then steered customers into costly upgrades. Now, the company did not admit to any wrongdoing. And the tax prep companies are going to fight to defend their turf. Uh, an Intuit spokesman says... The proposed IRS system is, quote, nothing more than a solution in search of a problem. And he added it will unnecessarily cost taxpayers billions of dollars. Fact check that for us. Would it cost billions of dollars? You know, there's lots of uncertainty around the cost. Uh, it depends in part on how big the system is, how many people use it. Uh, you know, is it limited to very simple returns? Can it process more complex tax situations? In its report today, the IRS estimated this would cost somewhere between 64 and $249 million a year, so a pretty big range. Some of that would be for technology, but a big piece would also be customer support that the IRS would have to build out in order to help people navigate the system. NPR's Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome. Over the last year or so, you've probably felt the effects of inflation at the grocery store, in restaurants, or even at the gas pump. But one particular group of people has been hit especially hard, the incarcerated. That's according to a recent analysis from The Marshall Project, a nonprofit newsroom that covers the criminal justice system. For more on this, we've called Alex Ariaga, a reporter at The Marshall Project, who helped put this analysis together. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much. And thanks for being here. So, I mean, we should first note that it's pretty complicated to track these figures. Your reporting shows that each state handles commissary pricing and sourcing differently. But generally speaking, what were some of the major trends that you saw at prisons across the country? Yes. So in my reporting, um, I requested commissary prices from all 50 departments of correction. And from the 26 that responded, you know, it was a range of the way that they all handle their pricing and the contracts that they have with vendors, but we did see a pattern of rising prices on items like peanut butter, ramen soup, soap and toothpaste, basic food and hygiene items that are really commonly purchased. Well, your reporting goes into some of the stark differences between what certain goods in prison cost versus what the cost is for those same goods on the outside. And we're talking about things like, you know, soap, toothpaste, food. Just give us an idea, like how much more expensive are some of these items in prison? Yeah, so we found that, for example, a jar of peanut butter, depending on where a person is incarcerated, now costs between 25% to 35% more. In some situations, something stood out where the price of peanut butter increased by 61 cents in the Wisconsin Department of Corrections while the portion size decreased. Mm. And in some situations, we also saw where states' price lists showed the retail price that they paid. 
that people incarcerated are paying more while the retail price stayed the same for the department. So I know that you talked to some people in prison who are facing these rising costs. Can you talk about what they told you about how these prices are affecting their living conditions? So I reached out to incarcerated people in different states who all expressed the emotional aspect of the struggle to pay for these basic items. So you get the price list, the menu for what you're going to be able to buy the next day, and you're looking at the prices and they're higher than you budgeted for. And now you're going to go instead of for the nutritional option, you're choosing cheese and crackers, or, you know, you're going without deodorant, people are feeling more tense. And there's a certain sense of humor that people cope with as well. One person told me, you know, people were joking that they were going to trade sexual favors for some of these basic items. God. I mean, they say that jokingly, but do you think some of that is going on to supplement income? Yeah, it's definitely kind of a coping mechanism to make a joke out of something like that. But we do hear that people do go to really desperate measures and drastic measures to be able to eat and have their basic needs met. And there are examples of violence and fights and people robbing one another for a meal. Mm-hmm. You know, I imagine that there are some people listening to us talk right now and are thinking to themselves, okay, fine, this is unfortunate. Inflation is affecting people in prisons, but inflation is affecting everybody. So of course, we're seeing an effect inside the prison system. How do you respond to that sentiment? I think there's a maybe an attitude that what's going on in prisons is separate and other from the outside, and it's not affecting me. But we know, you know, from the pandemic that what happens inside of prisons and inside of jails, it all kind of feeds into everything else. We know that people in prison are working and manufacturing goods that we purchase and that, you know, they're working in construction and agriculture. And we know that, you know, we know based on the same families that are struggling to afford for basic food items on the outside, a lot of them are also covering the costs for rising food items on the inside of prisons. And they're struggling They're you know, do I send my loved one in prison enough money to pay for his meals or do I put food on my own table? That is Alex Ariaga, a reporter at The Marshall Project. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Start your day with WBUR and Rupa Shinoi tomorrow morning. There's at least a smidgen of optimism in Washington about resolving the debt ceiling. We'll explain what's changed. Listen once again tomorrow. In the forecast overnight tonight, breezy and cooler should be a nice night for sleeping, just under 50 degrees. Then tomorrow should stay on the cooler side, only reaching 62 degrees with mostly sunny skies. Red Sox host the Seattle Mariners again tonight for the second game of a three-game set. Nick Pavetta throws the first pitch at 7:10. It's 6:30, and Marketplace is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center with the musical adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer-winning classic, The Color Purple, now through June 4th, theumbrellaarts.org. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at zevin.com.